Grab your popcorn and snacks. Find a comfy spot, take a seat or lie down, and let me transport you to a place of fantasy, ghost stories, ancient legends, odd creatures, alien encounters, and other magical topics. You may even decide to join the conversation. From faraway lands to your own backyard, with a small dash of pixie dust, turn out the lights and open your minds. The journey is about to begin. Hey, how's it going? Welcome to California Haunts Radio tonight. Let me get my buttons pushed. Here we go. Kind of sticky. Boy, I'll be glad when the Easter candy's done. I have lots of it, and <laughs> it calls out to me. And I can honestly say, I just ate—I just ate a rabbit's butt. No, 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 a chocolate rabbit. I ate a rabbit's butt, but it's neat. You know, I don't get chocolate all the time. I'm not a person that eats a lot of sweets, so this is—you know—it's the holidays, and that's when I do my sweets. Anyway, welcome to the show tonight. My name is Charlotte. Let me get over here. I'm going to be your host for the next hour or so. Got a great guest, someone I fought, someone who I followed for a long time. Because what happened to this gentleman is spooky. You know how I am about these spooky things, just like you know, the uh, Mojave incident and all that stuff. And I, I, I am all about these spooky people. Hello, Jen. And uh, what he went through is something. Because what I went through. You know, I don't even know if I went through anything. I just know that I lost like an hour and a half, two hours of time. You know, so who knows what happened to me? Sometimes you just don't want to know. But anyway, welcome. I am the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento, California. We are 35 strong up and down the state. So if you happen to have things you think that are going on, paranormal, UFO, Bigfoot, whatever, give us a call, send a, shoot us an email. We'll come out and, and uh, take a look around for free. You know, we, we do it to help people. Just take donations only. Like, adjust this a little bit. Okay. And, uh, like I said, we're all around the state of California. And if we don't have somebody in your particular county, we'll have someone from a nearby county come out. You know, on from our staff. So that. We're also in Oregon, Washington, and Hawaii. So if you need help in those states, let us know. And we can get people out to, to help you a little bit with that, too. Uh, if you're watching from YouTube tonight... Please subscribe. Our numbers are growing, and I'm real excited about that. But, you know, you always need more and more and more, so please subscribe. There's a subscribe button down at the bottom right-hand corner of the video, and it's got a little uh, ghost with a Sherlock Holmes hat and a magnifying glass. Please subscribe. If you're watching from Facebook, shoot us a like or two, okay? Because we really we love seeing comments, you know. We want you to comment on the video. We we want likes. We, you know, we like to see pe people's reaction to what we're doing. Anyway, um, like I said, tonight's going to be a cool show. I have no announcements to make today for once. Actually, nope, I take it back. I've got a psychic development class that I'm teaching next Saturday, 2 p.m. Pacific. And you can reach that through the California Haunts Meetup. It's for people who think they might have psychic abilities or people that have psychic abilities but don't quite know how to handle them. Because there's, 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 there's the right way and there's the wrong way. And the wrong way is to open yourself up and anything and everything can come through. Because it's not always nice. Okay? I teach you how to open and close the door so you can, you, you can pretty much control what comes through. Okay? So if you're interested in that, check out the California Haunts Meetup. Okay? Just type in California Haunts Meetup. All right. Well, anyway, again, our guest tonight is Terry Loveless. And uh, many, several years ago. Well, I'll let you, I'll let him tell the story. I don't want to mess up anybody's story. It's not my gig, you know? So let me get, get him on here without further ado, Terry Lawless. 
or Terry Loveless. I'm so sorry. <laughs> it's going to be one of those nights. Hey, how you doing? Good to good be to here. <laughs> nice to see you again. It's good to see you too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. it's been a while. Yeah, you got a channel that's going places. It's starting to go. Yeah, all of a sudden it's taken off. It's funny how, you know, we started out was real slow and then we started to pick up and then February hit and March came and then boom. It just started to take off. So we're real excited. Well, you know, you you cover all the cool stuff, man. I mean, you know, I had never been to a I had never been to a haunted house. I had never been to a Bigfoot uh on a Bigfoot hunt. Uh, and last year I got a chance to do both and they were both a lot of fun. Oh yeah. It's a blast. I got a chance up in, um, cause we used to have a house up in Montague, California, mm -hmm. up in Northern California, uh, about 40 miles up from Mount Shasta. And we used to go into Bigfoot country all the time. Cause it was only like a 25, 30 minute job, uh, drive from where we were. And then I used to tell my mother, I'd say, Hey, don't tell them I'm a go, you know, I'm a paranormal investigator. They're going to put me on one of those, those trucks and take me. And she did, and I went, and it was, it was fun. You know, it was a blast. You know, Mount Shasta's got some pretty scary stuff, spooky stuff, weird stuff going on. So, yeah. Well, I can tell you that our back porch used to look out on the Mount Shasta. So I would sit out there in the evenings. I was waiting for that sucker to open up on top. You know what I mean? I yeah, oh, I know what you mean, yeah. I was waiting for those reptilians to come out of there. Uh, you know, I, I got a friend who's a helicopter pilot. And he said there's kind of a no-fly zone up there, but uh, he was flying around up there and happened to see uh, on the side of the mountain uh, a black a black rectangle, like a portal of some kind, and something shot out that, like, you know, a million miles an hour, boom, and uh, then suddenly the the rectangle was gone. I guess it closed. So uh, yeah, there's stuff. I hear it's the reptilians that that are way under there. You know. And, that too. Yeah. And if you go into like the town of Weed, that's like right at the base, one of the towns that's at the base, there's a lot of mystic shops in there, mystical shops. And a lot of them talk about that. Ooh. You know, how, how the mountains got aliens in it and all this. And I swear to God, what, you know, we had that house for like eight years. I used to, start, <laughs> every time I was up there, that's all I did. And my, my, my family was like, well, why don't you ever come off the porch? I'm like, I'm watching. Shh, shh. Leave me alone. Let me know. I'll see if things come out, come out of the mountain. But never did. At least not on my side anyway. I was on the north side of the mountain. So you, you never you never never saw anything cool. Mm -mm. Ah, that's the I way it bummed. works. I waited. And I was bummed. Even through the, you know lightning storms, I'm thinking, well, maybe you know, lightning storm will trigger them to come out or something. It's like never when you're looking for it. No, that's true. It's always when you're like like what happened to me is you know on the freeway going to a movie, you're in the car with a friend, and then all of a sudden you're. You notice things are looking weird outside your window, and next thing you know, it's an hour and a half later. You know, and you're in some and you're in some old town. Man, I'll tell you, you know, your hour and a half that's missing. <laughs> I, I I would love to. Uh, you know, I uh, I got interested in hypnotherapy about two years ago. Yeah. And I uh, uh, completed a course through the Wellness Institute out of Seattle in hypnotherapy, and uh, I've been I've been doing it quite a bit, and. Uh, getting some really unique surprises, past lives and uh, all kinds of crazy stuff. So have you ever been regressed on the issue of what happened during that hour and a half? I have not ever. Would you like to? I would love to. Well, we should, we should arrange that. Okay. Let's do that. Yeah. Yeah. I always wonder. It was, it was the strangest experience I've ever had, you know, 
it's it's the, the area I was in. It was populated, right? And so you could look out. It was it was getting dark, and you you could look out and see all the city lights. As we're driving, like I I've told the story before to my 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 listeners. As we're driving, I notice that the freeway starts to get kind of like you know like those photos you well I'm a photographer too, but those photos you take when you're trying to take the lights and then the smears of the lights. Yes, that's what it started to look like out the windows. And then yeah. when I was going under the overpasses, when I was a kid, my dad always had a hatchback. So I always laid down the hatchback and slept, you know, when he was driving. And I remember going under those underpasses as a kid, and they whole had vines on them when I was growing, you know, when I was little. And I happened to notice the underpasses as, I, as we were going under that, that they had vines on them. And I turned to my friend that was in the car, and I said, you know, this doesn't look right. Something's not right. Looked out the window. There's no city lights or nothing. Man, hour and a half later, we're like 22, 20, 22, 30 miles down the road in some town. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I wrote a second book, and I asked people that you know who've had experiences that are strange to uh, tell me about them. Yeah, and uh, I got well to date. I've got over twenty three hundred emails from people. Wow. But I had a core of about four hundred really cool stories, and I had a couple stories. Uh, people very similar to what you experienced. Uh, you know, they're driving on the road, then suddenly they're seventy miles down. Yeah, down the road from where they thought they were. Yeah, weirdest thing. And we looked at each other. And we went, "You think we were abducted?" You know, we're, I'm just going. Let's just go back and go to the movie. I'm just going to try and stay calm. And you know, of course, we were seeing well, what you call Masters of the Universe. <laughs> we get back, and I'm like, "Oh, good aliens!" Uh, yeah. yeah. But yeah, so yeah, I, yeah, I would, I would love to find out what happened in that time, you know. And for all I know, there's a bunch of little me's, you know, with big eyes running around some ship somewhere. You, you know, you got no way to know. No, there's no way to know. I you had know? a missing time experience in 1987 when I was on a motorcycle ride, and uh, I recall that it was it was seamless. I mean, it was like you were in a movie, and someone spliced the film together. It was absolutely a seamless. For me, it was a seamless transition. Yeah. It's like I blinked. I was I was on the road doing like 75 or 80, and it was coming up to a curve, so I was throttling back, and I blinked, and suddenly I'm doing 35 on this on this uh, dusty uh, gravel farm road. Mm-hmm. Like, Whoa, how did I get here? Yeah, that's yeah. what happened to us. I mean, like I said, all of a sudden there were no more um, city lights, and then everything went everything went blurry, you know, off the sides, and yeah. then the next thing we knew. You know, we're an hour and a half out. So I don't know. Yeah. It's like one woman, uh, <laughs> woman from Henderson, Nevada, who's uh, 76 years old, wrote me about an experience she had in 1968. And uh, we kind of carried on a uh, conversation back and forth by email. And she's like, look, I'm, I'm, this is awkward for me. Can we just talk on the phone? I'm like, sure, even better. You know, so we had a long telephone conversation and I asked her that, um, uh, that question I said during this event, do you think you experienced missing time? And she says, Well, how would one ever know? You know, good point. Good point. Makes sense to me. Makes perfect sense. Now you have had more, and I was telling P I was trying to tell people about it yesterday. You have had more than missing time, though, haven't you? What happened at Devil's Den? I have. Uh, I can tell you the whole story. Um okay, okay here we go. Know. Let's dive in. Um 1977, I was active duty in the United States Air Force. 
Uh, and let me give you folks just a real brief bio. And okay. then Go this for it. Make more sense. See, we got into talking right away. See, we forgot about the bio. <laughs> I know. Yes. Nice to visit again. Yeah. Yes, it's good. To, it's really great to visit. You know, I, I graduated from uh, high school in 1973 and um, joined the United States Air Force, where I spent the next six years on active duty, uh, all six of them at Whiteman Air Force Base in western Missouri. It was a SAC base. And uh, I um, finished my enlistment in 1979, uh, completed a, gr- a degree in psychology, and then went to lo- law school at Western Michigan and then made my career practicing law, which is why I really couldn't come forward with this story um, because it would not have flown well. It would not have, it, it would not have worked. I would have been unemployed. I, I worked for, I worked for the government. I was an assistant attorney general in um, American Samoa, uh, the only U S territory South of the equator for trivia loves. And uh, from there, I went to the state of Vermont where I retired from there as state's attorney in 2012. So that's what happened, to, or that's my that's my my life in a nutshell. What happened in 1977 was uh, I was working the night shift in the emergency room as an EMT with my with my buddy Toby, and uh, he came up to me one night and said, "Hey man, I got an idea. Let's go camping." And I I thought he I didn't know how to take him because I mean I knew he was from Flint, Michigan. I was from St. Louis, Missouri. We were both city kids. Neither one of us had ever been camping. I suspected he hadn't. And, uh, but he made a good argument for it. You know, I had a brand new camera. He's like, you know, grab your camera. You can photograph some wildlife. It'll be cool. It'll be fun. And uh, um, it was it was an adventure. So we uh, arranged a, a four-day weekend in June of 1977. We drove from Whiteman Air Force Base to Devil's Den State Park, which is in the northwest corner of Arkansas. And uh, we agreed beforehand that we would not stay in the campground. Because like Toby said, you know, look, if you stay in the campground, you're going to have people to the right of you, people to the left of you. They're going to be kids and other undesirables. And let's just, let's be real outdoorsmen. Let's find our own campground. Uh-oh. Uh, yeah. So <laughs> we, uh, we, we did. And we, um, we dodged the ranger station. We didn't buy a camping permit. And we took, just took a gravel road until, pardon, we took a paved road till it turned to gravel, till it turned to dust and dirt and came to a uh, sternly worded sign and a chain across the road. And it said, you know, no admittance, keep out. Uh, and I thought it was maybe some kind of nature preserve. I didn't know it, but it's actually uh, land owned by the Bureau of Land Management. Still to this day, it's owned and managed by Bureau of Land Management. So it's federal property. It's not even a part of Devil's Den State Park. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was I was going to turn around and my buddy's like, no, hang on. I got this. He hops out of the car and that chain had just been looped around itself with a padlock. And then they draped it on a nail on the opposing post to form a chain across the road. So he just picks it up, drops it. Boom, we're in. And, you know, we felt like Lewis and Clark, right? And right. We, we drive in and, and um, we found this plateau that um, was really cool because the top of the plateau was absolutely level with the treetops of the surrounding forest, which meant it, unless you stumbled right up on it, it was invisible. But from the top of this thing, man, you had just an incredible view. And just a dirt road straight up. 
And um, we set up camp up there. And it was just, it was a very cool place to camp. I got to say that. It was just, you know, there were a trillion stars out. And, you know, we did all the fun stuff you do when you camp because it was all new to us. Mm-hmm. And, uh, we uh, were sitting around a campfire that night, the first e- our first evening there. And it's around 9 o'clock p.m. And I noticed that we were having trouble carrying on a decent conversation across the campfire, which was right between us. Um, and we're on air mattresses, all comfortable, right? And uh, the crickets, the tree frogs, all the stuff in the forest that makes noise at night at night was just so loud that we had to raise our voices to be heard. And uh, that suddenly went, boom, just quiet. And I've heard other people tell me that. I've heard, uh, I've heard that story from other people that have had that experience. Uh, and hunters, I, I don't hunt, but hunters have told me they've experienced the same thing. And it kind of spooks them out too. Uh, and it did, it, it, it kind of freaked me out. And I asked my friend, of course, like he's going to know, you know, and I'm like, Hey, Toby, man, is this normal? Is this routine? I mean, is this, this just seems weird. And, you know, he kind of made fun of me and said, yeah, don't worry about it. The, 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 the bugs, the bugs will all come back. Don't worry about the bugs. Uh, you know, the crickets, they'll come back. Uh, nothing to worry about. And, um, but I felt unsettled by it. I did. And we carried on about 15 minutes more conversation. And then I noted that he turned his head toward the left and uh, is fixated on something on the Western horizon. And I'm just about to ask him, hey, what are you looking at? When he asked me, hey, Terry, were those lights there before? And I'm like, what lights? I don't know what you're talking about. Because, I mean, we were in the middle of nowhere. The place is still in the middle of nowhere. It's it's still there. Um, And I couldn't see what he was looking at because his torso was in the way. So I had to stand up, take a step back. And then on the western horizon, I saw... There were three little stars uh, in a tight little triangle, and they were too far above the horizon to have been lights from a train or a parking lot or something. Uh, And they were dead still. They didn't move. So I was thinking maybe it's a plane headed in our direction, and we're just going to have to wait for it to change direction by a degree or two, and then we'll see that it's moving. Uh, but we're looking at it and it's not moving. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, what was interesting is that, um, our reaction to this thing, our reactions were muted. They were really inappropriate to what was going on. I mean, you know, you, you know how it is when you encounter something strange, you, you've encountered the unknown often mm-hmm. enough, I'm sure. And, and, you know, it's like, whoa, I mean, it's, it's human nature. You want to, um, you want someone to validate your experience mm-hmm. and uh, tell you, yeah, did you see what I saw? And compare notes and stuff. And there was none of that. Um, and then it moved. And but what it did first was it rotated like it was on an axis, and it just turned. And it turned 120 degrees or so and aligned the base of the triangle parallel to the horizon. And as soon as it did that, a second or two later, it started to 
go straight up. And it kept that, that three light configuration until it reached some point that I'd call a ceiling, a point mm -hmm. where it came to a stop. I don't know how far up it was, but they were just barely discernible that they were three separate lights distinctly. You know, it wasn't one solid light. If it had gone a little bit higher, we may have not been able to focus and see all three of them clearly. So no idea what the altitude was, but when it reached that level, it changed orientation and kind of went, um, uh, it kind of went parallel to the horizon, parallel to the ground. And that's when we saw during its descent, it had like a glide plane in our direction. And we could see that, that there were three lights in a row. And so one at the apex of the triangle and then the two, you know, on either side, lights mm -hmm. on all points of the triangle. And it did this somersault like thing where it would dip down and do a complete somersault and come around and do a hundred or 360 degree turn. Uh, and it did that twice. And while we're watching it, and I had this feeling that, you know, I don't know where this came from, but I had the feeling that it was doing that with intent. It wanted us to know that it wasn't just out of control and tumbling, you know, it was being operated with intelligence and intent. And um, that, that experience of calm was really strange. Um, years later, I had, I broke an arm and they gave me a drug called Versed which is a kind of a hypnotic drug that has an amnesic effect too. Um, but it kind of puts you in a twilight, puts you in a really strange place. And that's really what this kind of reminded me of. Because uh, we were both calm and sedated and uh, not flipping out like we ought to have been. Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, there's no conversation. We just watched this thing glide in. And it came to a stop about 3,000 feet over the campsite. And it was big. I mean, it was the size of a, it was as big as a Walmart. Um, perfect triangle. I did a, I drew a picture of it uh, on some ruled spiral bound notebook paper back in August, like two months after the event, while it was still fresh in my memory, I wanted to draw a picture of it. And I kept that picture and that notebook with notes in it, which was a a lot of help in writing the book. Um, and I, I, when I wrote, when I uh, published the book, I took that, uh, that drawing and I, I redid it on a nice piece of art paper with a ruler. And that drawing is on terrylovelace.com. If anyone would like to look at it, they can see it at terrylovelace.com. And that's a real good picture of what we saw. Uh, and if you're looking at that picture in the, in the lower left corner on the ground, uh, You'll see real tiny two little two little characters and a tent in my car, and I was trying to draw something to give it some kind of perspective about how big it was, but um, you know, not having any skill at doing that, I'm not sure I succeeded mm -hmm. really well, other than to get get across the point that it was really really big. Um, so it came to a dead stop right over the top of this this uh, plateau and we were camped kind of off to the side. So it wasn't just hanging over our heads. It was off to the side a bit. And um, 
we're laying there watching this thing. And from the underside, um, dead center of this thing, it shot a light down. And it was, um, it was a visible white light. It had that character to it like if you were, if you were shining a high-powered searchlight through fog, you know, you see a column of white light. That's very much what this was like. Uh, only there was no fog, of course. Uh, and the beam of light itself was about six inches in diameter. And it's just, boom, popped on like someone hit a switch. And it landed right in the middle of our campfire. And I look at it. My friend looks at it. We look at each other. And it's there for, you know, maybe 60 seconds, maybe 30. I don't know. Um, and then it just shut off. And then, but immediately after that, it shut down this uh, red laser-like light. Now, you know, in 1977, lasers were kind of a new thing. There weren't, I'd seen them on television, but I'd never seen one in real life. So, uh, but I recognized it for what it was. It was a laser. And uh, it was about the diameter of a pencil. And it was a reddish purple. And it came down and would, la would land someplace and stay there for less than a second. And then, boom, reappear at another location. And it struck me in the chest at least three times. I never felt a thing. I know it hit my buddy. It hit the tent. It hit uh, our my car. It hit uh, Toby's backpack. Everything that we brought there with us, it hit. And I had the feeling, you know, this this thing's checking us out. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's scanning us. Uh, and uh, that's what I believe. I believe that's what it was doing. So we watched this play out for about maybe a couple of minutes. And then it turns off. And then what's interesting is that that feeling of uh, sedation that we had, that transitioned from feeling sedated and calm to just feeling sleepy. Because mm -hmm. there, there really is a big difference between the two. They're two, two distinctly different things. Mm -hmm. um, I wasn't sleepy. I mean, we were two guys. I was 22. Toby was 23. We were in the best you know, best condition of our lives. And, uh, you know, we were young guys. We shouldn't have been, we shouldn't have been sleepy. Mm -hmm. And, uh, all I wanted to do was to go to the tent, throw my air mattress in and, and, uh, fall on top of it and go to sleep. And that's exactly what I did. Toby beat me there. Um, and I threw the, uh, air mattress in and I fell in on top of it and I was just unconscious. And, you know, people think, boy, you know, well, that's really just unbelievable. You know, why, 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 would, you, uh, why would you have this thing 3,000 feet over your head the size of a Walmart and you decide to go to bed? That doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. well, they're right. It doesn't make any sense. But, you know, I think it speaks to the level of influence that these things can have over us. And I, I don't think they're, you know, that. You know, I've had people say, well, they use some kind of gas to put you in that state. I don't I don't believe that. Um, I think whatever they did. Um, well, I don't understand it. It's above my pay grade, but it they have the ability to do that is what I'm saying. The only thing I can say that sounds close to that is what I call a psychic hit. And I've experienced it myself that. When you're at a haunted location and a ghost will run through your body or connect with you uninvited, what it does is it, 
I get like a weird feeling in the pit of my stomach, but what it does afterwards is it makes you really sleepy to the point where you can't stay awake because it saps all your energy. Yeah. Yeah. We were, we, that's, that's where we were at. So, you know, I had a couple of people from the near death experience community write to me and say, you know, do you realize you have a lot in common with near death experiencers? And I'm like, no, I didn't realize that at all. And uh, they pointed out to me that 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 sense of calm, that sense of relaxation, and yes, you get that. Yes, go to sleep, and that that that's all a part of it. And uh, you know, not having interest in things that you should be interested in, or you would mm-hmm. normally be interested in. Um, and there there were a couple other things too, but they made a, pr- a pretty good argument and. Uh, I just think there might be some kind of connection between the two. I don't think I don't think ET is involved in near death experiences. I think they're two separate mechanisms. Um, but the process the human brain goes through might be similar for both. True. 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 Yeah. So you were really tired. You went to sleep. You went to sleep, and then I woke up some hours later, and there were these in, insane flashing lights coming through the canvas of the tent. And I woke up and I didn't have my wits about me. And I'm, I had to think for a moment, oh, oh yeah, that's right. Toby and I were, were, uh, were camping and uh, that's right. Um, and, and I see these lights and I'm trying to make sense of it. And I'm thinking that they must be like the overhead flashing lights from a park ranger's truck mm-hmm. there to kick us out because we were trespassing. Um, and I sat up and... Uh, I noticed that my boots had been unlaced because I wore my combat boots, a pair of jeans and a t-shirt. And uh, I sat up and that, that didn't scare me, but it annoyed me because I knew I did not go to bed like that. Mm-hmm. You know, I would have taken my boots off. I would have left them tightly laced up, which is what I did. Um, but I wouldn't have done that. You know, one of the things they hammer into you in, in, in the military is to take care of your feet. And uh, uh, so I, I was uh, annoyed at that. Mm-hmm. And I took my boots off and was going to put them on properly. And I noticed my socks were on sideways. And, of course, it never occurred to me that I'd been undressed and redressed. Right. Someone. Um, so I put my socks on properly. And these flashing lights are still annoying. And I noticed that my friend is on his knees looking out of a flap on his side of the tent and he's staring at something. And uh, in one of these flashes of light, I saw that he had tears streaming down his face. I could see the right side of his face in these because the inside of the tent was pitch black uh, until there was a flash of light. And then it lit up the inside of that tent insanely for a millisecond. Mm-hmm. So he'd been crying and, uh, you know, that, that, that got my fear level from a zero to about a two or three, cause I couldn't imagine what in the world would make this guy cry. And I'm thinking, you know, park rangers are out there going to kick us out. Well, that ain't the end of the world for, you know, nothing to cry about for sure. And I, and I asked him, I'm like, Toby, man, what is it? Is it park rangers? What's out there? And he didn't give me a, he didn't give me a reasonable response. And, uh, 
I got I got frustrated and I I, I opened the flap on my tent on uh, the, the flap on my side of the tent mm-hmm. and I'm looking out and I saw two things that that craft that had been 3,000 feet over our heads back some hours earlier both of our watches we wore mechanical watches which were you know state of the art for the day um, both of our watches had stopped mine stopped at 240 Toby stopped at 242 had no idea what time in, in retrospect we found out that we woke up about an hour before daylight so but we didn't know that we didn't know what time it was mm-hmm. and um, this craft that was had been 3,000 feet above our heads just some hours earlier had descended and it's now like 30 feet above the floor of the meadow so it went from 3,000 feet to 30 feet over the meadow and fortunately we had camped off to the side, um, we didn't camp underneath. Otherwise, this thing had been hanging right over our heads, and that would have really been intimidating. And it was kind of cool because we had camped off to the side, which gave us an opportunity to really see up close the structure, see the sides of the thing. And it was insanely lit. Um, and it had uh, it had square windows, like an apartment building. And, you know, if you ever drive through... Um, I don't know, pick a town, Chicago, Dallas, drive through the downtown section of any major city late at night and you'll see um, office buildings and uh, windows are lit here and there, but for the most part, it's black, but they're either cleaning or some poor souls having to do an all nighter because, uh, uh, you know, a boss gave them a deadline and they're they're working uh, too hard. Uh, that's what this was like, you know, windows were lit here and there. And at the top of this thing was an observation deck. Like I, that's what I called it anyway. The, uh, if you look at that picture, the glass seemed to curve outward and, uh, it was just this big, long row of insanely brightly lit light and we could see movement and motion, but we couldn't make out figures. So there were just shadows that we could see because they were lit from the back and we saw them in silhouette. And uh, I saw that. And the, the second thing I saw was um, when the, when the lights flashed, it would illuminate the underside of this thing and, the, and it would illuminate the, uh, the whole metal. And when the lights would flash, I saw again for a millisecond, for a split second, I saw what I took to be a dozen maybe 15 kids walking around this meadow. And I, I asked Toby, I said, Toby, man, what are these kids doing out here in the middle of this field, in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the night? What? And uh, he's just shaking his head. And he said, Terry, man, those ain't no little kids. Look at them. They're not human beings. And that stunned me. And that, when he said that, I had just, a mental image of being in there, being inside that thing. Uh, and I mean, I've never had a clear linear memory of what happened to us, but just that flash of memory and my fear level went from, you know, a two to a 10 and I was absolutely scared out of my wits. And I was afraid that, you know, one of us would cough or sneeze or do something to get this, uh, to get these little guys attention. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had no way, we didn't know it, but they were long done with us. 
you know, they, 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 they dumped us off already. And uh, they, they were typical grays. They were three, maybe three feet tall, uh, all uniform. Uh, they were all identical. Uh, large heads, spindly bodies, long torso, you know, long torso, long limbs. Um, and we were some distance away, so I didn't have a real good look at them. But I could absolutely tell that they weren't they weren't human beings. And I have a th- I have a theory about that actually. And this is this, I mean this is nothing but conjecture on my part. Sure. I think I don't think that these little gray guys are sentient in the way that you and I are. Okay. I I think that they are. I think they're manufactured. I think they're they come right off an assembly line. And. Um, that's what I think. I mean, there's some kind of combination of artificial intelligence, nanotechnology, some biological material, who knows, throw it, throw it all together. And uh, you got a little robot to do your bidding. I was just going to say, cause a lot of people uh, describe them as, as like the worker bees. Yeah. I use that. I, I use that exact word in my book, actually worker bees. You know, I had a long talk with Calvin Parker um, who I just think the world of is just a, just a wonderful man. And uh, at, where were we? Someplace, some conference. I don't remember which one, but we're, we're sitting down talking. And, uh, you know, when you meet somebody that's had a similar experience to what you had, it's like you, you, there's an instant bond there. You can sit down, you can talk, and it's just uh, just uh, refreshing. And uh, he was talking about the little gray guys. And uh, he also had two great big things things that he said were like football. He described them like football players, kind of like the muscle guys. Um, but yeah, he, he told me, he said they're, they're, they're a little, he, he thought too that they're quote little robots. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, worker bees is, is a spot on. That's, that's what I would call them. Worker bees. They're task oriented. They're, you know, they are, uh, they're always doing whatever they're supposed to be doing. There's okay. there's no slackers in the bunch. So, um, I told Toby, I said, man, I'm not leaving this tent till the sun comes up. And he really didn't object. Um, and we watched these little gray guys kind of wander around this meadow for a while. And then, uh, another light came on from underneath the ship and in the center and from the same spot, only this was a column of white light, that, that milky white light that I described earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, again, just like someone hits a switch. And this light was about as tall off the metal as it was broad. So I, I estimated it was about 30 feet. Um, this beam of light was about 30 feet uh, tall and then about 30, about the same, about 30 feet wide. And as soon as it clicked on, these little guys all turned their attention toward it mm-hmm. and started to make their way toward it. Um, and not in a hurry, but just at a steady pace walking toward it. And while we watched, they would step into this light in pairs and in threes, and they would just pixelate out and be gone. Wow. And it was the craziest thing. It was just like very much like that uh, the old Star Trek series. Mm-hmm. I've never been a sci-fi fan, 
so I, I didn't didn't watch it except except uh, you know when my wife was watching it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, did a transporter trans something rather transporter yeah transporter yeah they would stand on a, on a circle and they would pixelate out. That's exactly what this looked like. I mean, wow, exactly like what we saw. And when the last of these little guys uh, pixelated out and was gone, the light shuts off. And there had been a low kind of a mechanical humming noise um, that, you know, if, if you listen to something, a noise like that long enough, it becomes a baseline. You don't even notice it. Right. So when it shut off, we noticed that we noticed it then. We noticed mm-hmm. its absence rather than noting its presence. Um, and we saw this thing take off. And it didn't take off like a rocket ship. It took off like a, like a hot air balloon. And it just lifted off and went straight up. Hmm. The higher it went, the faster it went. It turned a little bit. And we could see it. It was, you know, three lights and then one light and then gone. And I told my friend, I said, I'm still not leaving here till daylight. And he's like, no, man, let's get out of here. Let's leave this place. And he convinced me that. And I think that was the right thing to do. There's no reason to stick around there. We needed to get off off of that plateau and back to civilization. Mm-hmm. So we, we ran to the car and my car, we hopped in and uh, started right up. Thank God. And thanks to Toby's excellent sense of navigation, we were able to get, because uh, you know, when you're driving on these dirt roads through the forest, everything looks the same. It's the yeah. same scenery. You know, there, there are no landmarks to let you know where you're at. Um, but he navigated us back to p- pavement and um, we went home and then, you know, that was a real uncomfortable six hour drive. Um, and I say this to people and, and they don't understand it. I don't understand it, but in these letters I got from people, um, this has happened to other people too. And that was for some reason I want here. He was here. This guy was my coworker, my best friend probably in the world. And suddenly I didn't want anything to do with the guy. And, you know, um, there was the abduction out of Maine, that I think it was in 1973, the Allagash Four. Um, there was an excellent book written by Ray Fowler called The Allagash Four. Mm-hmm. And um, same thing happened to them. They were four good friends. Actually, one, two of them were twi- were identical twins. Uh, and you know how close twins are. Right. Uh, so a, a set of twins and, and two other friends and they, these guys did everything together. You know, they hunted together, they fished together. They, you know, they did everything, you know, like, like friends do. Mm-hmm. And uh, after this experience that they had mm-hmm. on the Allagash, on the lake off the Allagash river, um, they went back to bed. They went, they were, they were on the lake fishing and they, you know, paddled their canoe into the, uh, and, you know, parked it, whatever you call it, you know, stopped their canoe, secured it. And, uh, everybody went to bed. These guys were just abducted. You know, all four of them were abducted and uh, nobody talked about it. Nobody spoke about it. And, uh, 
it's kind of like the band breaks up kind of thing. They all four kind of boom, went in different directions. And uh, the only way that this, this story came to come out, I'm talking about Ray Fowler's right. story of the Allagash Four, was one of the twins is having nightmares. And he picks up the phone and he calls his twin brother and says, you know, I'm having some really bizarre dreams. And twin says, yeah, me too. And I come to find out they're having the identical dream. So they ended up going to a psychologist uh, who used uh, hypnotherapy uh, and helped them recover those uh, those hidden memories. Uh, you know, a lot of people discount that and say they don't believe in that. They don't think that that's legitimate memories. Um, you know, I think differently. I think it is. I think it is very valid memories. So, question. Yeah. Is, did either of you guys end up with PTSD? Oh, God, yes. Yes. Well, you know, I, I told you that um, we made a mad dash for the car. Mm -hmm. And um, I didn't want to leave the tent until daylight because I didn't want to be in the open. Right. I mean, all I had was a piece of canvas over my head, but I felt like that gave me Cover, I guess would be the military word for it, cover. Um, they couldn't see me. And uh, to this day, I mean, ever since, um, mm -hmm. if I'm looking at walking across an open field, I won't do it. I won't do it alone. I mean, I'll walk a mile and a half to go around, but I won't cut across an open field because I just I'll have a panic attack. So, yeah, I, I, I got some PTSD out of this thing. Yeah, see, Jen says, yeah, I don't think I'd ever go – I never want to go outside again, <laughs> you know. I could see that. I, I could actually see that. You know? you know what else was kind of surprising? And uh, I think I put this in my book, my first book. Um, I was at the mall, and it was uh, 1987, mm -hmm. and it was right around Christmas time, and uh, – I walked around the corner. We, we split up and we're both doing shopping. Uh, we didn't have cell phones, obviously. And um, I walked around the corner and there was this, um, it was going to be a women's clothing store. And it had um, like a banquet table and it had these mannequins, but they were only from the waist up hmm. and they were undressed and they had their arms out at odd angles. And of course, no hair, no wig or any, any facial features. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I'm just walking around the mall, you know, look, you know, having a good time. I turned and I saw that window and I saw those stupid mannequins and I just flipped out. I just absolutely flipped out. And I, uh, Found my wife somehow, managed to find her, and said, "We got, we got to go." I, 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 you know, and it was a typical panic attack. You know, I've had a few, and they're for those who've never had one. I can tell you, they're very unpleasant. And uh, you know, so I also have a ritual that I have to go through before I can go to sleep, and. Uh, that's a little bit OCD. I don't know if it's PTSD, but it's definitely OCD. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I will, uh, the bedroom door has to be open. The curtains have to be drawn tight. The closet door must be closed. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, if things aren't just so, uh, I can't get to sleep. And then I'll go around and check all the doors and the windows in the house, uh, turn on the alarm, make sure everything's good. Um, but I can't go to sleep until I get that done. Mm-hmm. And so, and sleeping in a hotel room, no, it's just, just really, really tough to do. Your story's fascinating, you know. Just, just to go through that, and then you know you have to go back to real life. So, did you share it with anybody right away, or did you did, did you guys just keep it to yourself? Well, when we got back to base, um, there's some odd parts to the story. Um, when we got back to the base, we were both sick as dogs. Uh, I had a fever. Toby had a fever. Um, the only conversation that we had in those six hours driving north was we agreed that no matter what happens, because we both knew we were sick enough to probably have to have to go to the hospital. Uh-huh. And, you know, the hospital, we were all members. We were both members of the hospital squadron. I mean, these were our people, right? right. We knew everybody in the squadron. They knew us. Everybody at the hospital knew we were making this camping trip. So we made an agreement that no matter what happens, we would not admit that we saw a UFO because we were, we knew how things kind of worked and we knew that were we to make that kind of admission that uh, they would ship us out for a psych eval and it could lead to an unwanted discharge. It was really important to me. The Air Force was never a career, but it was a ticket to college. It was my ticket to the GI Bill. And that was the whole object of that exercise. Mm -hmm. So I didn't want to put that in jeopardy. So we agreed not to, we agreed and we didn't want to lie. You know, we we were ethical enough to have an issue about lying about it. So we, we decided on this, you know, we barbecued some hot dogs, kicked back, kind of felt kind of funny, went to bed, woke up sick as dogs and went home. So, and I threw in, yeah, we didn't care about a $10 Kmart tent. You know, we left there. We left Toby's backpack with all his stuff in it. We left this nice Coleman cooler. Uh, I left some uh, just miscellaneous articles of clothing and stuff. All I grabbed was my wallet and my keys. I didn't care about the tent or the air mattresses or anything else. I just wanted to get, get out of there. So at the hospital we were ordered to have no contact with one another. So I was not to contact Toby. He was not to contact me. And we were warned that if we disobeyed that order, there would be serious consequences. And come to find out, after talking to Robert Hastings, uh, who wrote the famous books, uh, book UFOs and Nukes, um, that's standard procedure in all branches of the military. I mean, I'm not talking about, you know, a group of guys standing around, they see a, a silver disc dart across the sky. Right. I'm talking about something a little more intimate than that, like what we experienced. Mm-hmm. Uh, standard procedure is to bust them up, keep them from communicating to one another. You know, two people can each validate the other's story 
mm-hmm. and become credible. And they didn't want that. Mm-hmm. So they shipped Toby off to Japan. And uh, I stayed at Whiteman until the end of my enlistment. Wow. So, but the strange thing was this, that, you know, we agreed not to tell anybody about what happened, but they knew. They knew what happened. And I know that they knew um, because my, uh, I stayed, I was hospitalized. I had um, what was called flash burns uh, to my eyes. It's like a sunburn to the cornea of your eye. It's, it's what an arc welder would get if they didn't wear that hood with the smoke glass to protect their eyes. Right. And um, so I was hospitalized for three days, two nights. And it was the evening of my second night in hospital. And um, they uh, kept the lights off in the room because my eyes were so photophobic, sensitive to the light. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, uh, that evening, my night nurse, who I knew very well, came in with an injection for me to, for pain and help me sleep. And uh, two guys followed her into the room, into my hospital room. I had a private room. Uh, and you could tell these guys were cops. I mean, I don't want to stereotype anybody, but I mean, these guys were cops. I mean, you didn't, you didn't need to work in law enforcement to tell that they were cops. And I mean, I'm a former prosecuting attorney. I work with law enforcement. I have all the respect in the world for law enforcement. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't mean to make anybody upset when I say that I could tell these guys were cops, but come on, you know what I mean? I mean, right. they kind of walked with a little bit of a, a swagger. They had their, their suit coats were unbuttoned. I could see a shoulder holster with a weapon in it. Um, you know, and they, uh, they walked in and there were two guys, one in his mid fifties and the other guy was maybe in his early thirties and a guy in his fifties who was a major did all the talking and he pulled out, they both pulled out ID and showed it to the nurse and uh, they stopped her. They said, if that's going to sedate Sergeant Lovelace in any way, it's going to have to wait. We need to ask him some questions. And then he said, and shut the door on your way out. Hmm. And I thought, hmm, it's kind of rude. I mean, in retrospect, looking back at this, I think a lot of what they did that night was just theatrics. Mm-hmm. I think it was just drama for the sake of uh, intimidation to get their point across because they, they wanted information from me. Mm-hmm. And I've wrestled with this. I've got nothing. I've got nothing to prove this. It, again, it's a little con- bit of conjecture on my part, but I had a reputation in the squadron of being an amateur photographer. And the, the reason I wanted to go down there was to photograph wildlife. So I think they wanted to know, I think that they were fearful that I had a 36 exposure roll of film with pictures of this thing. And boy, I wish I had, I sure wish I had. Um, But you know what? Another crazy thing was the idea of taking a photograph never crossed my mind, Mm -hmm. you know, and Toby, I didn't have my camera. That's a long story too, but but Toby had his camera and it was in his backpack within, he reached over and pulled it out of the backpack. Mm-hmm. One of us thought, and again, I think that's that level of influence that they, they have over us. So they asked me a bunch of questions and um, 
wanted to know why we left all our stuff down there. And the, the guy said, you know, the only thing I can think of is you were planning on going back. Um, and he says, uh, you boys got a little marijuana plot down there. Is that what this is all about? You're growing some weed out in the woods. And now that sounds kind of comical now. Right. I got to tell you, in 1977, being active duty Air Force, um, had I been growing marijuana on federal land, uh, that would have been a you know dishonorable discharge and a ticket to Leavenworth, most likely. Mm-hmm. So uh, that scared me because I thought, what if by chance somebody did grow some marijuana down there just by, just by happenstance? They could hang it on us. So um, the nurse comes back, um, gets in a little back and forth with this major about, you know, Sergeant Lovelace needs his medicine. So, okay, so I get the medicine. And he says, that's okay. We're wrapping up here anyway. So she leaves, the captain leaves, and the major shuts the door. And the major had this um, this unique accent, very similar to Calvin Parker's accent. And uh, he got down next to my ear and at about a whisper. He said, son, I know and you know, you two knuckleheads stumbled onto something when you were out there. And I think you know what I'm talking about. And I didn't answer him because I didn't know how to answer him. Because mm-hmm. I'd made that promise to my friend that I wouldn't. And I didn't want to be sent for a psych eval. I mean, I didn't think I was crazy. But, uh, you know, I, did, I didn't want to run the risk of that's just, I didn't want that. Um, so I didn't answer the guy. And he says, oh, yeah, he says, I think you know exactly what I'm talking about. And he says, all I want to know is how many pictures of it did you take? And, you know, without thinking, without thinking, I blurted out, sir, I never took a single picture of it. Mm -hmm. And he just smiled real big because he had my answer. I knew that he knew and he knew that I knew we were both talking about the same thing. Mm hmm. So I think that the Air Force absolutely knew what I saw. Well, so, you know, they could have been tracking it, you know, and they knew that thing was out there. And then when you guys came in and, you know, knowing, knowing where you guys went, they were probably curious to see, you know, what, you know, what exactly it was. Or, or, or they, or like you say, they knew exactly what it was and they knew it was out there. Well, you know, I, I agree. I mean, I think there really are there really are only three uh, possibilities, and that is that the United States Air Force and our government work arm in arm with ET through some kind of arrangement, or um, you know, B, there was some kind of arrangement, and maybe ET is exceeding their, you know, maybe they're allowed to take. A, 20 people from state and federal parks a year. Cause you know, David Pilates, um, yeah. David, the missing 411 series, you know, he, he, there's an awful lot of people in not only in this country, but around the globe who disappear from state and federal parks, just boom, vanish mm-hmm. or, or their remains are found in uh, really weird circumstances. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, maybe there was some kind of agreement and ET is, uh, is going beyond the boundaries of their uh, their contract. 
Yeah. And and then the third option is they do whatever the hell they want and we can't do a thing about it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's as likely as the other two answers. Who knows? Yeah. So when did you decide that you wanted to find out more about what happened? You know, I... I had had odd experiences for a lifetime. I mean, I saw stuff when I was a kid. I talk about that in my book when I was young. And, uh, you know, then I had a 10, 11 year hiatus where I didn't see anything. Mm -hmm. And then this happens. And uh, uh, this event in 1977 really, really, uh, you know, rocked my world. It really, it, it, um, I think of it like I went, I went down there like a teenager and came back, a, you know, an adult. It was a major, major event in my life. And uh, so I, I never told a soul other than my wife. Because mm-hmm. really, who do you trust? Who do you trust with a secret like that? I mean, um, that would have been a career ender for me. Mm-hmm. You know, if I was if I was really, really fortunate, I might come out of it with my with um, a job. I don't think I'd have been working for the government, but I might have come out of it with a job, uh, maybe still practicing law somewhere. Uh, mm-hmm. But I certainly would have lost the respect of the peers, my peers in the legal community. Um, it'd be gone. And uh, I didn't want to risk that. And I was bound to determine I wasn't going to tell a soul ever. And then in 2012, I uh, had that pain in my leg and I went to the emergency room and that's when they discovered these things, weird things in my leg. And those are also at terrylovelace.com. You can see the x-rays and they found uh, two sets of weird things in my leg. And um, that was, that validated that these things had put their hands on me. Right. And that was really hard for me to process and, and deal with. So that was tough. And that's, I stewed about that. Yeah, book number two. I stewed about that all through uh, to 2016. And I made the decision I was going to speak and write about it. And that's when I wrote Incident at Devil's Den. And uh, I self-published that on Amazon. There we go. Now that. In, on March 10th of 2019, pardon me, 2018. So March 10th of 2018, I published that. And uh, I'm happy to say that it's, it's sold very well. It's, I've sold, sold thousands of copies in 11 different countries. So um, I think something about the book resonates with people because I think there are people out there that have had experiences that, um, you know, maybe you're just, just a little bit outside their grasp, you know, it's just veiled somehow, hidden. And uh, that's why, uh, that's why you might want to look at that hour and a half. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. So when did you decide to find out what, what happened? I mean, because obviously you, you, you were kind of hesitant about telling people. Well, I, I, I refused to tell anybody until I published it. I, I had to tell an editor. Right. Um, 
And um, my kids, we have two adult children, uh, 41 and 37. I shouldn't say their ages. He'll get mad at me. Uh, <laughs> and they knew that dad would have screaming nightmares a couple times a year. Um, but they never knew any of this. And my wife and I saw no need to tell them about it. You know, why scare them? You know, why, uh, you know, they might be the fortunate people that live an entire lifetime and never have any kind of encounter. But, you know, it tends to be a familial thing. You know, if, uh, if grandpa saw something in the sky, chances are you will too. Yeah. That happened in your family? Do you have a family history? Not that anybody said. Yeah. And again, it's a secret. Nobody wants to talk about yeah, it. Nobody wants to talk about it. My mother for years, even with psychic abilities, my mother for years denied having them. And then when she got old in her 80s, boy, did they come out. Yeah. And they were real accurate. But my mother was always spooky about them. And, and you know, of course, denied. Oh, no, no, no. I, I don't have those. Yes, she was dead on. I hate to say the word dead on, but she was, she was spot on, you know, with stuff. Right. I know what you meant. Yeah. Yeah. So they're probably, you know, through, throughout the life of my family, like, like, like you say, the history, there's always been weird stuff, probably. You know, I was, uh, when I was going through hypnotherapy uh, school, um, one of the um, instructors that we had was a uh, clinical psychologist. Mm -hmm. And um, we were talking privately. This wasn't in front of the whole class. And she's like, well, what do you intend to do? What are you going to do with your, because uh, she knew that I had a law degree and was a lawyer. And she said, what are you going to do with uh, hypnosis? And I said, well, you know, I've also had some experiences. I said, no, I don't think I'm crazy, but I've had some experiences with uh, ET. And uh, I think other people are struggling with it too. And uh, I'd like to I'd like to use this to help them explore and find out what really happened to them. Because, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we want to know. We want to know what happened. You want to know what happened in that hour and a half. Mm -hmm. And I mean, in the meantime, I got I got all kinds of friends that want to quit smoking and lose weight. <laughs> and they, uh, you know, they're all coming to me. Uh, but she said something kind of revealing, and that was that uh, she said that she was surprised at how many subjects and she had hypnotized thousands of people you know, over a lifetime because you know um she was at the uh at the end of a career and uh she said i can't tell you how many times that those kind of memories have popped up and uh, she says i there's there's too many for it to be some kind of mass hallucination He's, she said it didn't meet the it didn't meet the definition of a confabulation. It was, you know, you know, we'll talk to somebody, you know, like Yvonne Smith. Yes. Wow. She, you know, she, uh, she's going to run a workshop for, uh, for a hypnotherapist um, this June. And I want to try to attend that and uh, learn some tips from her because she's been regressing people, people like, uh, well, like us for 35 years or something crazy. So she's got a wealth of knowledge and experience. So. Absolutely. So did they, you know, when you decided to finally get hypnotized, you know, to, to regress, 
what kind of information came out? I mean, what, what kind of tests did they do on you? I've never been hypnotized. No? Okay. Okay. <laughs> I, just I know this is silly because I'm encouraging others to have it done. Right. And I will have it done. Right. I, but I haven't done because I haven't had it done yet because I only want it done by Yvonne Smith. Sure. So I wouldn't want some newbie like myself messing around with somebody's mind. Experimenting. <laughs> so you know the story, though. I mean, it, it, it's an incredible, scary, spooky story. It is. You know, and I think right now we're reading um, a Mojave incident on Sundays. Oh, okay. And that's another one that's really spooky. And it's similar. I mean, they experienced something similar to what you did in a lot of ways. Was that an active duty army guy? No. He was, no. He, I think he was a Marine at one point. Okay. He was, he was just an enlisted guy who, you know, retired, you know, got out and then had a family and everything, but they went camping up in the Mojave in the middle of nowhere. And, you know, like, like the whole exhaustion thing, like you talk about, they experienced that. Yeah. They experienced the little ones, you know, and, 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 and that was terrifying too, but yours is just as terrifying. Well, you know, there's, oh. I think, you know, we all as human beings have a range of emotions and you ask somebody what, you know, what's the strongest emotion, you know, and nine out of 10 people will say, well, love, obviously, because, you know, you would do anything for love. You would kill for love. You would uh, uh, do anything for someone you love. Um, but I don't, I don't think that's accurate. Uh, I'm thinking, I think I'm thinking more of a, of an instinct, something instinctual, something a little from the lower part of the brainstem. And I think it's fear. And I think fear is probably the most intense um, emotion mm -hmm. that a human being can experience. Of course. Of course. Well, I don't want you going through that, you know, that, that, uh, uh, uh. Gives me the willies thinking about it. Yeah. You know, I, I uh, was talking to someone. I, I, I can't remember. I think it was Fiona Harris. Uh, we were talking about um, about abduction. And she made the comment. And, I, you know, I think, who knows? She could be right. Mm -hmm. And she said, you know. Who's to say this is an experience that's that's happened to everyone, right? You know, and there are there are few that are able to hold on to the memory, and uh, the rest don't. You know, like you say, for all we know, there is a government agreement, in that you know they want to come here and destroy us. Yet the government has made some kind of an agreement that, okay, you can take an experiment on our people as long as you don't come and destroy us. And that's kind of a threat, isn't it? Mm -hmm. You know, and, and I was thinking it could be, it could be a blackmail kind of thing, you know, and it could be, it could be a quid pro quo. You know, you give us people, you give us uh, cattle and uh, we'll give you a few of our citizens in exchange for technology. Right. 
exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Spooky, but uh, we live in spooky times. Do you think they've been back? I mean, like they, like, like you say, they, they, you know, there's they're stuff in your body. Do you think they, they, they've been back again for you, but you don't, you probably don't realize it? You know, that's always a possibility. Mm -hmm. You know, I had the experience on April 19th of 2019, and that's the last experience that I had. But in April 16th of 2019, I was asleep in my bed. Um, I wear a T-shirt to bed with a pocket in it. And I have a shielded old iPhone. Well, I don't anymore. I got something better now. But at the time, in 2019, I was sleeping with that in, in my uh, pocket of my T-shirt with earbuds, mm -hmm. listening to meditative apps or, or, or music maybe. Um, because it, it goes back to that PTSD thing where if, if I got something to distract me, then I, I, I can sleep. But if I'm, if I don't, um, every little creak and noise in the house, I have to get up with a flashlight, you know, and, and a gun and go investigate. And, uh, uh, so on that on that morning, I woke up at 5.55 a.m., out of breath uh, and in a sweat, and uh, I thought I was having a, a heart attack. And I have had a couple heart attacks, and I know that that thirst for oxygen is part of it, but I didn't have any chest pain. Mm -hmm. So just to be safe, I told my wife, call an ambulance. I think I need to be checked out. And, and ambulance guys came and got me from the fire department. And, uh, you know, my pulse was tachycardic. It was like 180 beats per minute. Um, that came down eventually. Um, and then my oxygen level uh, was like 89. And then it, it rose back up to 98 by the time I got to the hospital. Mm -hmm. So something happened to me. And um, I thought it was cardiac related. I thought I just had some kind of, but you know, I know the, I know the drill. If you think you're having a heart attack, they're going to do uh, cardiac enzymes and EKG and a chest X-ray. They'll do right. those two things. And that's what they did for me. And everything came back fine. And mm -hmm. uh, so they sent me home about three o'clock that afternoon. So I spent about seven hours in the hospital total, but they didn't think, think it was worth admitting me. So I went home, I had dinner. And I told my wife, you know, I feel well enough now. I'm going to go do my usual walk. Because usually after dinner, I go and I walk a mile and a half or two miles. So I'm headed to the sidewalk, up the sidewalk, or headed up my driveway, walking to the curb, going to start my walk just around the neighborhood. And I pull up the health app on my iPhone 6. And the Apple health app has two screens. On one screen, uh, and there's a picture of this in this book. Okay. There, there, there's a photograph of the uh, of the of the iPhone showing the readings that I got, and um, it showed that I had walked six flights of stairs. Wow. And what was even more interesting, it showed that I had walked six flights six 
flights of stairs in less than a minute between 5.23 and 5.24 a.m. There was just a spike. I mean, there's an XY graph, you know, where the passage of time is logged from, from distance from left to right and then height in, in uh, 10-foot increments at, tells you the height mm-hmm. or, or the number of stairs climbed. It's a 10-foot in height equals one flight of stairs. So um, I said, well, that's crazy because I live in a ranch house in Texas with no stairs, you know, right. maybe a threshold, you know, like that much. Right. And um, I, uh, yeah, I, I looked at that graph and I just, I just couldn't reconcile that. And I said, you know, I told my wife, I said, you know, I think they came and I think they took me last night. Yeah. I, I really believe that's what happened. Uh, now, that's something I'd like to have. I'd like to be regressed on. Right. Uh, you know, 1977 might be an awful lot to bite off and chew, but you know, just one little, one little incident. If I could find out what happened to me that morning, I'd sure love to know. That's incredible about the, the steps though. That the, yeah, that's insane. I know I have the same issue you do. I have to have some kind of sound on at night and the lights are on. I cannot be in the dark. I have to have some kind of sound on at night. I still sleep with the light on. Absolutely. That makes perfect sense to me. Yeah. Yeah, because I'm like you, every little sound, I can't, you know, I, I have to check it out if I figure out or I'll be paranoid. Yeah. So who knows why? I'll be scared. Yeah. It's that fear thing. Yeah. Yeah. See, we got stuff in common. See that? Yeah, we do. You know? Sir, yeah. it has been a pleasure. To talk to you. Likewise, it's always a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Pleasure, and I appreciate you coming on. I really do. Well, thank you so much. And uh, maybe we'll get you back on here again too, if you if you feel like you want to come back on. Let's talk about hypnotism, okay? Yeah, let's do that. I'll be up for it to find out. Okay. What's going on? You know, but I really appreciate you coming on. What What's next for you? Um, I think hypnosis. Okay. I think working with hypnosis, I'd like to work with some near death experiencers and, um, it's just the adventure continues, you know, life's an adventure. Aren't we lucky? Yes. (laughs) We're the chosen ones. I don't know what for, but we're the chosen ones. Yeah, we are. And how can people find you again? Uh, my, my website for the first book is terrylovelace.com. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't have a website for the second book yet. I'm embarrassed okay. to say. Uh, my books are both on Amazon and they're available in the Kindle version. Uh, they're available in, uh, in, in bound books with pictures. Uh, and they're also available in audio books. I've, rec- I've recorded an audio book for, uh, for both books. Okay in my own voice for better or for worse, but I wanted it to be in my voice because I, my story, I wanted to tell it. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you have an incredible story and I know everybody in the chat room was really, really into it. And I know all my listeners are really into it. Okay. So I thank you. I thank you so much. And I would love to have you on again sometime. All right. We let's, will. Not, let's not lose touch. Okay. I agree. You know where right. I'm at. Like okay. vice versa. All I right. know where to find you. All right, buddy. I'll talk to you later, okay? You have a good evening. All right. Bye-bye. Well, that was terrific. And, uh, yeah, I I, I met him before 
And uh, it's, it's nice. It's nice, you know. It's nice to see somebody you haven't seen in a while. Tomorrow night, we're on regular time, 6.30. Um, we're not shifting gears all together, but we're going to be talking ghosts tomorrow. And Kevin Paul, author Kevin Paul is going to be with us to talk about haunted Pennsylvania and haunted Appalachia. So we're going to be talking about some a bunch of ghosts for that, okay? So hopefully you guys come in tomorrow and I get it at 6.30 p.m. Pacific, usual time. Uh, if you were watching it on YouTube, please, please subscribe. You know, hit the hit that subscribe button. Our little mascot down there with the ghosty guy, the magnifying glass, and the uh, Sherlock Holmes hat on. Please, please, please. Uh, you can find us, too, at CaliforniaHauntsRadio.com. Or if you're interested in the paranormal team, that's at CaliforniaHaunts.org. All right. A little ticker at the bottom. Well, that's because we don't take any money to ghost hunt or do the radio show or anything like that. But we do accept donations because, well, costs are costs, right? Everybody's going through the same thing right now. So the internet costs and equipment costs and stuff like that. So if you can find it in your heart to help me out a little bit, that would be great. That's at paypal.me at California Haunts. Or if you're uncomfortable with PayPal, how about Venmo? Okay, just go to Venmo, type in California Haunts, and we'll pop right on up. But anyway, I want to thank you all for coming. And I want to thank Terry especially for coming and joining us for that almost an hour and a half to tell us about his encounters. And I'll tell you, that scared me just as much as the Mojave incident did. <laughs> that was really scary. And uh, I, thanks, everybody, for listening. And I will I will see you. In fact, I'm going to run Terry's information right now for you, too, before, you, before we go. And then I will see you tomorrow at 6.30 p.m. Pacific. Okay? Ciao. Websites, terrylovelist.com and facebook.com. Incident at Devil's Den is where you can find Terry. Uh, first book is Incident at Devil's Den, a true story. And you've got Devil's Den, The Reckoning for the second book. And like he said, he has that in ebook and audiobook if you're interested in that. And that's going to be Amazon.com. Anyway, I want to thank you all for coming, and I will see you tomorrow. Bye.